Ladies and gentlemen, time once again for the program that comes to you from different ends of the universe. And I'm not just talking geographically. It is your weekly No Agenda coming to you from the United Kingdom in the Curry Manor. I'm Adam Curry. And I'm here in Northern California. I'm John C. Dvorak. And we have a beautiful weekend here, John. It's about time we had some good weather. I hope it's shitty where you are. No, as a matter of fact, it's quite nice. It's around, probably going to be around 72 today and uh, oh, maybe 75. Oh, okay. Hey, we have a new mayor in London. Did you know that? Oh, you got rid of that communist guy? Yeah, <laughs> Red Ken. <laughs> yeah, he's gone. We got Boris Johnson as our new mayor. Boris Johnson sounds like he's a Norwegian. Have you ever seen this guy? Do you know anything about him? No, no, nothing. He well, he. Um, I, I didn't really know him as a politician first. I saw him as he, he was a host of uh, several television shows. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like you know stuff like what is it? Uh, have I got news for you? I think he uh, he certainly well that, they have a rotating host. I've seen him on that a, a number of times. He is a spectacularly completely British funny guy. I have no idea if he can run the city of London or London, I should say. Um, but, uh, he's, he's a joker, dude. I mean, this guy is funny, capital F. Now, I, I it's funny, I, I really don't know anything about what, Boris what's Johnson. What's his name again? Boris Johnson. He's a conservative. Boris as in Boris? Yeah, as in Boris and Natasha. Yeah, Boris Johnson, um, he's with the Conservative Party. And, of course, this is the big deal because Gordon Brown is Labour. And, you know, they lost, I think, 400 council seats around the country, which is just, you know, it's, that's devastating. Uh, of course, uh, projecting onto the, the job that Gordon Brown is doing, the current prime minister. And he's with the Labour Party. So this is a huge deal now that he no longer has a direct, uh, you know, party connection to London. This is big. I just don't know if this guy. I love the guy. I think he's funny, but I have no idea if he can if he can run London. Well, what do they just vote on? Any? Do they put just people just randomly? I mean, how do they? How does these, these guys run? I mean, this is always reminds, this, these elections would be besides Red Ken and Boris. Now it sounds to me as though it's like a, a college election where you know there always some guy puts himself up, happens to you know no, wear a clown suit. It's not quite like that, and he always wins. No, so you have it, it is part a party driven system. So we have Labor, we have Conservative, we have the Lib. Dems, the Liberal Democrats. Um, what is interesting, though, and I, I haven't quite, you know, this only happened in the, you know, yesterday or two days ago, basically, um, is that when you vote, you have to vote for the your favorite candidate and then your second favorite. I'm not quite sure why, but you have to cast your favorite and second favorite. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like That's some funny. tiebreaker deal or something that they put in there. <laughs> the it's like, all right, favorite. the second guy, we'll let him, we'll let him go. So, but I've, I was just uh, cruising around the net uh, last night. Like it's more like a survey, you know, to pick, here's your five candidates, pick them <laughs> just, in order. Yeah, win uh, valuable one, points. Two, no, get points. Get points for three. valuable prizes. <laughs> Cross off a couple boxes. Uh, but I had asked on the Daily Source Code for people to explain it to me or tell me what's going on or what's up with Boris Johnson. I got literally no response. Just no one responded at all. And I, what I did see surfing around the net, I see a lot of people are really pissed off that he's uh, that he's become mayor. And I see people twittering stuff like, I'm so disappointed in, in this city. And so I think a lot of people really don't like him. Well, uh, it's got to be better than this other guy. He was a real clown. Yeah. Well, the thing, I, the thing that really made me laugh recently about Boris is... Um, it relates to that uh, Jerry Springer show we were talking about, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But someone asked him the question, he said, have you ever slept with a man, Mr. Johnson? And his answer was, well, not yet. 
<laughs> so that kind of guy, that's funny, man. So that is funny to say, especially if you do it in this kind of naive. Uh, yeah, that kind style. of way. Not yet. <laughs> And, you know, and he's always jogging, uh, you know, as these politicians do, right? They get up in the morning, crack at dawn, and they'll jog around the block, and the reporters follow them. Except he wears, like, a, he has a, and he has a quite a distinct, huge mop of blonde white hair. But he'll wear, like, a, a skull and crossbones scarf on his head. I mean, he's nuts, man. He's, it's just like a typical, what I love about British nuts. I'm looking at the Telegraph, and it says senior conservative sources said that they would be gobsmacked if Mr. Johnson did not win the mayoral contest. What is gobsmacked? God, well, you obviously understand the what they mean with it is just completely flabbergasted. Yeah, but gob is it means face, right? I think gob is uh, isn't. Yeah, maybe it is. Are you Shut looking that up? Are you looking at it up? I don't know. Well, we remember we had gob stoppers, right? Gob, yeah. Candy. I think gob smacked. Hmm. Why? Worldwide words. Okay. What can you tell me about the British term gob smacked? It's a fairly recent British slang term. The first recorded use only in the eighties. Hmm. Really? Though verbal use must surely go back further. Not usual, necessarily. Uh, the usual form is gobsmacked. A uh, combination of gob, which is mouth, and smacked means utterly astonished or astounded. There you go. I guess it'd be the same as jaw dropping. Yeah, right, right, right. Oh, it sounds more British. Well, you know, the Brits uh, over the years, uh, especially recently, have done a lot more for the English language in terms of it being inventive. Uh, the other forms of e the English language, the American form and all the rest of them, are pretty conservative by comparison. I mean, we're almost like like the French compared to the British. They're making stuff up constantly. Oh, I don't know. I mean, we have a lot of technical terms, I think, that we made up in the U.S. Yeah, but that's not an. Well, yeah, but that's hmm, that's an interesting point. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. We have done a lot. Of, <laughs> not you mentioned it, but it's not like. But it's, it's out of necessity. I mean, it's like wait a minute. Let me. I just gotta You've invented something, and you got to call it something. It's not like you're casually uh, livening up the language with ad, with newer adjectives and screwball. You know, to uh, Google. Imagery. To Google. That's pretty lively. We made up a word there. Yeah, all right, all right. Forget I'm, it. I'm sorry I'm, I even brought it up. I'm writing it down. I got another yes, you're right from John. No, I've got three so four far. Four now, I think. No, no I, I think up <laughs> to four. Uh, so anyway, I um, I just got back from uh, from Holland. Oh, yeah, how'd that go? Your, your wife got a contract extension or what happened? Well, no, not yet. The, this is the, uh, the first, uh, the, now that they do four, I think four or five live shows until the winner of Holland's Got Talent is announced. Oh, who won? Uh, well, so this was a, uh, like a, a pre-qualifying round. So they've already pared it down from 200 people to 30 people. And so now they do, th that's right, they do 10 for the next three weeks, including uh, last Friday night. And then the fourth week is when they do the final... Uh, yeah, that's the real finals. That's uh, is it broadcast live? The final yeah, it, one. Well, this one was broadcast live too last night uh, or Friday night. Oh. It was. Well, how do you do four then if they're broadcast live? That doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? You, you have said they're going to shoot four. How do they shoot four? Uh, no, I didn't say that. No, no, no. They do. They're going to do four live shows. They did one last Friday night. They're going to do one next Friday night. The Friday night after that, and then uh, the thirtieth of May, I think, will be the final Friday night, and that's when they have the final final contestants. So are you flying there in your private plane? 
unfortunately, I think I told you this, my wife refuses to fly with me over the channel uh, <laughs> unless I have a safety pilot. And I couldn't get anyone who could stay overnight and stay with us. So, uh, And actually, we took KLM. What a, it, was, it was such an infuriating experience once again, and partially KLM. But Heathrow Airport, I usually fly out of Gatwick unless I'm going with Virgin, but Virgin has like their own entrance and you don't even see anything of Heathrow. They, so BAA, which is a, uh, uh, owned by a Spanish conglomerate, is running Heathrow. And of course, these guys are responsible for Terminal 5, which is just... Hey, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. I thought BAA was, stands for British Airways or something like no, that. No, no, British a, BAA is British Airport Authority. And it's run by the Spanish? So a Spanish conglomerate runs BAA, which includes the two major airports, Gatwick and Heathrow. So there's no competition. Oh, hold on a second. Either. Wait, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> I thought the British were known for their management skills at the at levels like that. How come the British don't run their own airports? Because they were. This is part of the nationalization. You know, they they were fucking greedy. They wanted to make money. So they sold it to the Spanish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you made that point uh, a while ago. You said this is what nationalization always leads to. Then some other freaking government winds up running your shit. It's unbelievable. It is, and and so it's you know it's you know Heathrow Terminal Five is messed up. Gatwick is, has been under construction for forty years, uh, although I think it is a, a pretty pretty well functioning airport. But now it, uh, they have this. It's this awesome. You know, I I flown in the Gatwick once. It's in the middle of nowhere. You have to drive right through the city streets to get back to where you're going. You mu you must be talking about uh, London City Airport because that's not true. Gatwick is literally. Uh, underneath uh, Heathrow. You mean below it? On the below, map? on the map, yeah, below it. Hmm. So you, right. that well, must have been was... London City or something where you landed because Gatwick is, it's the same to get from Gatwick into the city as it is. Uh, okay, then I'm mistaken. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, and this is, it makes me so angry. So only the only airport I fly in and out of, and I fly out of a lot of different airports at... Um, at uh, London Heathrow, they have a uh, a welded rack, and your carry-on bag has to fit into this rack. Otherwise, you can't take it with you on board. Yeah. Okay. It, it is the size of a cigar box, and and it's this, so I and I know this because well, first of all, whenever I go to Heathrow, it's through Virgin, and so you don't actually go through the 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 BAA. Um, part of the airport, you know, Virgin owns that part. And so it's their decision to say, okay, whatever size you want, you can take on. And you know my bag, right? The famous Adam Curry's office bag that I schlep everywhere with me. Yeah, and it's a funny shaped thing. But it's oblong. It's rectangular, but it, it's, you know, it, it's perfect. It fits in every single aircraft overhead bin that I fly on. Okay. And I know it does, it, it fits into this thing except for the wheels. The wheels won't actually go into this welded frame that everything has to fit into. So I know this. So I'm already like trying to, you know, push my wife along my side, you know, so that no one can really see I'm carrying the bag. And then there's this shithead like, oh, excuse me, sir, you have to see if it fits in this, in this, in this rack. You know, and so I say, yeah, it fits. Look, no, but the wheels have to go all the way down. I'm like, it will fit in the overhead bin. Oh, yes, sir, but this is a BAA regulation. So it is, it's only for their airport that your bag can't be over a certain size. And my bag's not huge, and it fits in every single overhead bin. And so I always wind up getting into a fight with these guys, and then I have to go and check my bag and take my computer out and do all this crap, and it just really pisses me off. 
Wow. Yeah, it started. It started. It started. Really started me off wrong. I was so. And of course, just the fact, just going through all this crap of commercial flying. EasyJet is great compared to KLM, which is like a scheduled flight where they, you know, a crew shows up and then you have to wait for the ground staff to do shit and you know priority boarding. Whereas EasyJet, it's the plane comes in, throw everyone off, empty the sick bags, put the new passengers on, and we're off, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that's I like love Southwest. It. Oh, I love it you so know, this, much. The CEO of Southwest once he, he said, "How can you know?" Somebody asked him, "How do you how, how come you're one of these airlines that makes money?" And he says, "A lot of these airlines don't realize that the the only way you you can make money, or no, he said the the thing you have to know about the airline business is that planes sitting on the ground do not make money. Yeah, it's extremely expensive." And so he just, you know, his operation is the same thing. They run the plane in, they offload it as fast as they can, they beg people to clean up after themselves, yep. and then they yep. throw another group on as fast as they can, and off they go. It's a total spreadsheet business. I actually had a very small airline myself, with, well, with helicopters, and you, and you have a, what they call a DOC, a direct overhead cost, so you know exactly... And and that includes um, maintenance per... It's all by hour, so maintenance per hour, fuel burn per hour... Uh, you know, obviously stuff like oil, but also uh, every piece that's going to have to be replaced. Uh, contingency, which is a percentage of overall. So, you know, you know that this aircraft will cost and, you know, it's like an Airbus 320. I'm probably just making it up. But let's say it'll cost you $6,000 an hour DOC, right? And then per extra person that, I mean, they, it's all down to a spreadsheet. So they know everything, but you're absolutely right. That's only if the plane is operating. If it's sitting there, it is just costing shitloads of money because that's the the other side of the spreadsheet is the the financing and the depreciation. And it's really simple. It's a very simple business. It's just that no one wants to pay a lot of money to fly anymore because it's so heavily subsidized for years. Mm-hmm. Well, so EasyJet is a good one. I've never been on them. That's a European cheapie. Yeah, no, e- EasyJet. That's uh, Stelios. You know the Greek shipping magnate who uh, started the airline, and uh, then he started a cruise line, and he's kind of like a, a Richard Branson, only without class or style. <laughs> totally, and and his color is orange. Right, everything is orange, which is just an atrocious color. Uh, but I, I think it's kick ass. The only thing that's sad, and I had heard that this was this was going to happen, is they used to have four flights uh, between London and Amsterdam uh, daily weekdays, and they've they've brought it back to two, and it's and it's purely because of the oil price. What's the what's the cost of a flight from London to Amsterdam on EasyJet? Well, this of course depends on how much in advance you book. So, well, if, what's the range? The range is. Um, one way, the range is between 38 pounds and 138 pounds, I'd say, if you book the day before. So you can go to Amsterdam casually for 75 bucks or so U.S.? Yeah, yeah. And you can get deals, and uh, you could probably do it consistently for a round trip about 100 bucks, I would say. That would be fun. Well, it's fa- again, That's it's... the one it's, thing. Americans don't... Uh, you know, Americans, you know, we were over here in an entirely different hemisphere and i and we don't realize you know that there's always a, a certain uh, cosmopolitan not everybody in europe is cosmopolitan by any means in fact i i remember watching some report once with talking to people in germany who have never been to paris even though it's just a short train ride and they never left the country i mean it does there's a provincialism all over the world but the fact that but the opportunity exists if you live anywhere in europe to just about visit all this cool stuff for almost next to nothing and it's something Americans don't understand because it actually costs us a lot of money just to go to the Grand Canyon, which is in our own country. 
Yep, exactly. And it's funny because, you know, I know all the, a lot of cab drivers in Amsterdam and they love, they love, they love doing the Schiphol Airport into the city run on, uh, oh, my daughter closing the door, on uh, Friday afternoon because that's when all the Brits en masse hop onto EasyJet, fly over to Amsterdam to get completely shit-faced all weekend long. <laughs> and then, so the ride the cab drivers absolutely hate is a bunch of puking, sick-ass Brits on uh, Monday morning trying to get back into the city to be in, uh, in their office by lunchtime. It is the worst ever. <laughs> so we just get invaded, but they're and you know and the and the Brits are rowdy. Going to bunch. see the museums, oh, of course, the Rijksmuseum, the Van Gogh Museum, yes, and the red light <laughs> hooker <laughs> district. <laughs> yeah. Now they all get stoned and tanked up and laid, and then they go back home. Hmm. Ah, yes, you know it's, it's called uh, it's, it's a form of tourism. <laughs> Amsterdam does not like being known for that as their main uh, tourism. I did want to say... No, they, they, well, it's a classic town. I mean, I think a lot of people, do, Americans need to visit this town because I, I consider it one of the really cool towns of the Western Hemisphere, or the Western, of the of the Europe, of Europe because hmm. it's, I mean, there's the bicycles and the trains going every which way and the, the cool little shops and the uh, really outstanding museums and... Uh, and, and while we uh, still have uh, a reasonably small amount of listeners... Um, if you're going to Amsterdam, you can hit me up personally. Just email me and uh, I'll help you find whatever you're looking for. I'll tell you the best places to go. As a service from No Agenda to you. Oh, that's nice of you. I do it all the time. People are always emailing me saying, hey man, I'm going to be in Amsterdam. What should I do? Where should I go? Yeah, I like well, it. What, you t- what do you tell them usually? Well, it really depends on who it is. You know, some people, believe it or not, that I know actually do want to go see the museum. Well, I recommend, is. by the way, anybody, you know, that museum, they're, they're, both museums are good, but the, the Van Gogh is quite interesting because that museum has got so many Van Gogh paintings in it. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of them. If that museum, because every once in a while they, they they pack up a bunch of Van Goghs from all around the world and they, they put them on a tour of the U.S. museum circuit, which, you know, they do with all kinds of different things. And I remember one of those things, Van Gogh in particular, showing up in San Francisco years and years ago. And it was like, there were like, you had to get tickets and there was a line a million miles really? long and you had to pay a fortune to get in and it was like a slow moving process it was, you, meanwhile you can go to this museum and you get to play I mean it's just I mean there's the, there's 20 times more paintings and it's just like you know there's none of this hassle it's a fantastic uh, thing to do so um, there's also the uh, the Rijksmuseum, which uh, usually has the Night Watch, Rembrandt, one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings on display. Uh, that's a great one to see. I, I always recommend people go to see the Museum of Modern Art, the Stedelijk Museum. Have you ever been there, John? I have John? not been to that museum. Oh, it's a really good one. I think you'll enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then depending, you know, I may say check out the Anne Frank House, although I find that to be kind of disappointing. You know, I think it's, it's depressing, this whole, the whole concept, and that does have a line. Oh, it's a huge line. Um, but what I, you know, what I recommend to others is the Blowboat, uh, which is a canal cruise uh, with, uh, with uh, goodies to smoke. That's a pretty good cruise. Uh, alternatively, you can take the Wine and Cheese Cruise, which is also good. Seeing Amsterdam from the water is a great way to, to see some fantastic parts of the city. You've done the, the canal boat tour, I'm sure, John. Not the blow tour. I never heard of that one. <laughs> I was thinking something else, by the way. <laughs> no, I have thought about setting that one up, but no. Um, blow no, the blow tour. I, it doesn't Excuse operate me, all year sir, round. You it, got the, <laughs> the blow tour. 
sit around a big table. I don't know. Anyway, no, no, so, you, no. Uh, it's just you. You're just like in a in a coffee shop. You know, you can buy some stuff, and then uh, you sit there and you smoke, and the guide tells you what you know, and it's like it's beautiful, man. You're like, oh wow, yeah. Look at that. Look at the fake <laughs> facades. They're so pretty. <laughs> Right. One of the reasons I like Amsterdam is it's a f- photographer's dream come true. There yeah, are true. because of the, the the architecture, and also there's the uh, I, last time I was there, I went to in the old town. There's this thing called the I think it's called the Hidden Church or this. It was this old Catholic church that's built into a bunch of apartments. Oh, is that you mean where the nuns still live? No, I don't think anybody's living there. It's almost purely a, uh, a okay. museum now. I'm trying to think. But what it's right doing. off the main. It's right walking distance from the. Uh, well, it's right as you first go into Old Town if you're coming from the train station, uh-huh. and it's uh, it's a really cool exhibit. It's, and uh, you've seen it. The Americans have seen it because they they highlight it occasionally on various documentaries. But it's like a it's like a church that's in the roofs of about five or six buildings, and during some period of history, it was used as a Catholics gathering place because being a Catholic was illegal for a while, and it's a whole like an infrastructure into this in, into these houses that's a, it's a, that's a built that's a church with a organ. <laughs> I would there look at this and say, wait, wait, the, the authorities couldn't tell this was couldn't going on. The they had this huge organ. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. You know, it's funny. I don't know what you're referring to. Actually, yeah, I'll have to send you a link. I'm surprised you haven't been there. It's actually worth huh. checking out. So the so the and to eat, I would just recommend a couple things. Um, if you're in Amsterdam, if you have a chance, and although not a Dutch, um, it's an imported food, uh, but it is a very typical Amsterdam snack, particularly after you've been out at night drinking or whatever. Whereas in the UK, people would get a, a curry or a you know a kebab. Uh, in Amsterdam, you have to get a shawarma. Are you familiar with the shawarma, John? Uh, not no, I'm not. Okay, so it's a pita bread, and in there is uh, uh, very much kebab-like, but cut up into small bits of strips, uh, usually veal. I, I think. think I saw this on a tourist show. I, you know, right. rough guide or right. something. But what you want is you want to find Ben Cohen's place. It's on the Rosengracht, and tell him I sent you. <laughs> what do you get an extra piece of meat? You ah, uh, you'll get all kinds of love. Trust me. <laughs> you got to have it with the uh, with the um, garlic sauce, the white garlic sauce. That's the best. And typically, even people will drink two glasses of milk with it, which is just astounding. Oh but, God! Yeah, I know. But it's a, it's an Amsterdam treat. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, well, the food in Amsterdam is not uh, necessarily no, uh, not spectacular. Of all those countries, De- no. Denmark, Amsterdam, all those Nordic and Scandinavian countries, and in Holland, they don't know how to cook. No, and in fact, the best cuisine in Holland is it was brought was what's Rijfstafel, whatever it is. It yeah, was, it's Indonesian. Not even yeah. yeah, it's Indonesian. It's not even their food. It's Rijfstafel, so which literally translates to rice table. And you want to go to Samasebo for that. Now, the, now I will say this: the last time I or the time that I know it was the last time I was there. I, I, there's a. People, there's some people that do the Teo Nue, Nue press, T-A-N-E-U. There's some crazy European press that pr- produces all these cool books. If you can go to an architectural store, you'll find them. Uh, the, uh, there's a builder source bookstore on 4th Street in Berkeley for anybody in the Bay Area. They should go there and look at these books. And, the, and there's the series. There's the cool, they're called Cool Hotels, uh, Cool Restaurants, Cool Bars. And they'll have them like cool restaurants in 
Amsterdam or in Holland or Amsterdam, cool bars in New York, cool hotels in San Francisco, and there's this, and they're inexpensive books, and they're not meant to be tourist guides. But the fact is, you, I got the cool restaurants of of Amsterdam before I went and looked and found about. 10 cool places that were just astonishing because this is like a, a, a book for architects to, so they can steal each other's ideas. Mm-hmm. And in turn, it turned out that the food was good too. So, it, you know, there is good food to be found, but it's, it's, well, it's a little rough. But there's, but there's just some typical Dutch things that if you run into them, you know, the, like the, well, Rijstafel would be, uh, would be, you know, typical uh, fare for going out. But uh, if you can get uh, poffertjes, which uh, is seasonal, that's the little pancakes. I mean, like right. really uh, half dollar size pancakes. You eat them with powdered sugar and melted butter. And of course, if in season uh, the the herring, you you, you want it, and it's just and it's literally raw herring. Although it's it's been in salt, I guess, or whatever. It's been cured with onions on it. You pick it up by the tail and you just whoop, just eat that right up. And then hit it with uh, some Dutch. You see, all you're talking about is snack food. Well, the uh, the Dutch fare is basically meat, potatoes, and uh, cauliflower. <laughs> that's that's what they've been eating all their lives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder they had to go to sea. <laughs> yeah, but if you're on vacation, you want to you know g- catch the local culture. You know, it's like they eat French fries over there with mayonnaise. You know, it's it's kind of weird, but you should try it. Yeah, yeah it's snack yeah. food. But no, the uh, you're right. The, in fact, the, that whole uh, Denmark's the same way, and so is uh, Belgium. They all eat French fries with mayonnaise. I'll never it's forget. I'll never forget 1972, and we were in Sundfort, and the Formula One races were still uh, would, were still on that circuit at the time. And as my dad and I went to have a look, and he said, "I'll, I'll get get us something to eat," and he came back, and I'm like, "What the hell are you thinking?" Yeah, I'm seven years old, right? <laughs> are you out of your mind? You're gonna give French fries with mayonnaise? But I've really learned to love it. <laughs> well, it's actually not bad. It's a little on the. I mean, it seems to me much about a grease overload. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even with the ketchup, there's a little vinegar in there to cut it. I mean, uh, the extreme other the other extreme of, of eating French fries is the British style, where they don't even use ketchup. They use they they cut go they cut to the chase, and it's just vinegar. Vinegar, right? Yeah. What I, wanted I love. To, what I wanted to say, though, um, about uh, being in Holland and the show, and this actually relates to um, the DVD that, that didn't work that you gave me. You said George Carlin was on it with, with his most recent uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. HBO special. So, of course, I went to Google and video.google.com, and, of course, the entire thing is online, right? That, that only makes sense. And I watch it. And there was this one segment in there, John, uh, you'll probably remember, he's talking about how the uh, kids today, well, he, he's done this routine before, uh, I think, in a different version, about how we're, the kids that are growing up today are all pussies, and uh, they're never taught to lose. Do you remember right. that piece? And, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. oh, well, you know, if, the kid that comes in last these days, he didn't lose. Like, oh, Johnny, you were the last winner. <laughs> right. And... And I related that to the show. So the show, by the way, a live television show with an audience and with 13 cameras, it's, it is very exciting to watch. You know, I'd kind of forgotten how, how cool it is. And, you know, I could basically go anywhere and stand anywhere. And, you know, multiple cranes and uh, just a big production. It was impressive. And I'm always uh, excited how that works and, and to see it all come together. It, it, it was very cool. Um, but they, but the... It kind of clicked for me after having seen that that George Carlin bit that why this type of program works so well because it is so 
it seems really harsh, but basically, just like the Olympics, which of course are also extremely exciting, because on these types of events, Olympics and you know performance-based reality shows, people actually do lose. You know, right, and they cry about it. And they it. cry about it, exactly. And and on this show, it's kids, too, which is really, really heart-wrenching. Um, so it was just, uh, it was it was good to watch, man. I love it. I know you don't, I know you hate that kind of TV, but wow, it, it really sent me up and down on the emotional roller coaster. I hate it because it's, it, it, it ruins these people's self-esteem. Oh, you're kidding me. Come on, this happens every single day in auditions. Auditions every... Oh, you're, sh- you're shitting me, right? I'm, I'm, did I just fall for that? Did I just like well, step in that? Oh, God, I'm God. horrible. All right, I got I to gotta switch topics real quick. How embarrassing. That is bad. I, I'm tired, man. Come on, I've been like a bitch boy for my wife, carrying her suitcases, getting her tea, you know, keeping people out of her dressing room. It's been... I've been total... I've just been subservient. I'm, I'm, I've been beaten down. <laughs> I was uh, I was watching an excellent documentary on the BBC. It's a series, uh, I think a four a four part series, and I, I hopefully I configured it right to record the other ones. It's it's about Brick, and we talked about this. Brick is this new acronym for Brazil. Uh, uh, was it Russia, India, China? Brazil, yeah, thank you, Brazil, Russia, India, China. So they started with Brazil. Makes sense. Here's something I didn't know, and I, I and I've never been to Brazil. I've never even been to South America, which is uh, really on my list. I, I want to go. You'd love it. I'm sure I would. So, did you know that in Brazil, the houses are bought with 100% cash? That up until a few weeks ago, six weeks ago, you could not get a mortgage, but you literally would buy a house from someone for you know whatever the the asking price was, and you'd give them a, like a check with the full amount. Huh. And what's happening now, and I'm like, wow, this is pretty amazing from a financial perspective, is they've now opened it up, uh, and, and it makes sense. You know, the world needs another money supply. Well, basically, they're going to start pumping all of this money out of Brazil because now everyone can get a mortgage. And people are like, and by the way, the mortgage rates, 68%. Sixty-eight percent interest. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to. Uh, you know, I write for a magazine in Brazil for done for a decade or mm-hmm. more. Decades. Is that uh, a tra- write, tranny gazette? My, the, it's called Info. <laughs> I, I'm gonna write my editor and check this story out because that. It's, I don't know. It doesn't sound right. Wow. Okay. I mean, it it, it was a. Uh, looked a pretty credible documentary, and, and I, w- I was flabbergasted. You know, and they're like, "Hey, you know, what a great place to go get some money. We'll just start offering uh, mortgages." And I can see a number of institutions that would be very interested in grabbing some of that cash of everyone. You know, the whole, all of Brazil is basically loaded with with equity. Yeah, I would think so. If that's true, um, it's you know, it's a possibility. Uh, I've only been to a. I have been to a number of private residences, and um, um, I never thought to ask how they were financed. But uh, <laughs> excuse me, did you pay for this fucking thing yourself? <laughs> did you like, pay for this? With you know, I mean, it's just wouldn't. It's like one of those weird things that you, just you go to say. a country a half dozen times or more, and then the next thing you know, there's some screwball fact you never thought to ask. Yeah, of course. Damn, <laughs> how could you not think of that one? <laughs> it's just too off the wall. Well, for yeah, us, yeah, but when you think about it, you know, maybe we're just off the wall. You know, I don't, you know, that's the thing I, why I don't, why I find the story somewhat uh, incredible because uh, most nations, whether even China, I mean, they, they look at what we do and copy it. 
It's not like, you know, what we're doing is, is crazy. You know, everybody copies our form, especially the United States form. Of, and actually, Britain, I mean, we, the British and the United States are pretty much the same when it comes to how we do capitalism. Mm-hmm. And everybody copies it. And, you know, it's not like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, 100 years into it, somebody says, gosh, let's do mortgages. I never thought of that. Ah, geez, you know, <laughs> slapping the foreheads. Uh, it just doesn't sound right. Well... I, I was really paying attention to it because I was like, holy crap, I, I had no idea this was... And by the way, was it like 19 million people in Brazil? I'm sorry? 19 million people live in Brazil? And that's how many people live in, in, in Rio. Well, in Rio, right. I'm sorry. No, I, you're right. I meant Rio. Yeah, the, the Rio's probably around 19. Uh, Sao Paulo's probably around uh, 25. Hey, I wonder they, you if, know, Sao Paulo, they don't know what the population really is. They, you get different estimates from 20 million to 35 million. But I'll tell you, the first time you see that place when you're flying into it, if you're coming from the right angle, you, look, mm-hmm. you think you're landing on Mars or something. I mean, there are just buildings right to the horizon in every direction. It's right. amazing. And, and like with no seeming structure or organization. It's kind of, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rio. That's exa- Well, maybe it was just Rio then. Maybe it wasn't all of Brazil with the mortgages. Well, Rio's got issues. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, pr- particularly on the other side of the river. Well, it's just not just the river. I mean, it's mostly in the hills. The All the best, you know, like somebody once said, he says, what town would you have where all the best view lots and everything that is really cool is all slums? Yeah. Uh, it's the favelas. They're all on the hills. And it's like yeah. a separate city within a city. And it's like if they ever got could get rid of that, it's too late now because they let it fester. But if they cleared that area, it would be some of the most amazing property in the world. Yeah, but they can't do that now because that's the part of the work. A big part of the workforce lives there, right? Mm, not that I can tell. It's more, you know, I don't know how much of the workforce comes from the from the slums. I'll go back and I'll check my skybox later on tonight, and I'll find out the name of the documentary because I'm sure it's on Google. And by the way, why doesn't Google get sued for that? What's up with that? It's like the, it's like no one gives a shit anymore. It's like has have copyright have mainstream copyright authorities given up on Google? You mean uh, the George Carlin thing? Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. You never hear anything about it anymore. You know, yeah, you know, so once in a while you still hear about a takedown request for a song from some guy who taped his three-year-old dancing to you know Michael Jackson or whatever. But you never really hear anything. And and you know, and here it is, only a couple weeks after, yeah, a month after Carlin's new HBO special is on. And this thing, of course, was out the day after. It's nicely categorized. You know, this guy's got a whole page filled with all of uh, George Carlin's work. Um, and, and it's, it's like, oh, here's here's this series, here's that series, and it's all just up there. I don't understand. They're just not getting called on it. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I'm happy, right? And, if and, it was on YouTube, they probably would get called on it. It's on YouTube as well. It's just shittier quality. Oh, yeah, it's on yeah. YouTube. I don't know. I, you know, the whole thing is somewhat baffling. It's just people do, uh, you know, things get taken down that should be up there and things are up there that should be taken down. It doesn't never made any sense to me. I mean, somebody puts a little clip of uh, John Stewart and comment, you know, which is like a short, which is nothing right. more than a publicity. Everyone freaks out. It's like a free advertisement. And then the Comedy Central guys get all bent out of shape about it. There's no free advertising with the George Carlin thing, but there's free advertising with the John Stewart thing. And the John Stewart thing gets taken down. The Carlin thing stays up. Exactly. I know it doesn't make any sense. It's, to me it's like the British Airport Authority. It's like no fucking consistency. That's the Spanish. <laughs> oh man! And Boris Johnson's going to take us through the Olympics. 
Uh, wait a minute. No, that's not true. He doesn't get to stay that long. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, I was at the library. Our library here uh, has these sales every once in a while, and I always go to them. I, I got bought a cookbook. I said this is an aside because it was a callback to a show we did a couple of weeks ago. So I got this cookbook that was a dollar, and it's from 1940, and it's Ruth Wakefield's Toll House Tried and True Recipes, which I, apparently huh. Ruth Wakefield was like a uh, the Alice Waters of the 1930s. Wait a minute, and, wait a minute. You just said nothing. That meant nothing. The Alice Waters? I know Julia Alice Child. Alice Waters is the one who does Chez Panisse. She's famous in the West Coast. This is the, the, the problem with with the trendiness of cooking comes and goes. So tell me about Alice Waters first so I understand. Well, Alice Waters is the one who kind of rejuvenated uh, fresh uh, Mediterranean-style cooking, which became California cuisine in the 70s. -hmm. And she runs this restaurant, Chez Panisse, which has become kind of a mecca for uh, foodies, Uh, although I don't go there much anymore because I think it's it's lost a little of its... its, um, Luster. Trendiness. Well, I lost something. And the audience is... I mean, I, I don't like really going to restaurants where I'm I'm the youngest person in the restaurant. It just doesn't work for me. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, she's... But this woman from the 40s... But what's cool about this... There's a couple of things I wanted to mention. I don't want to get into too much of a, too much of a food discussion. But okay. there's a couple of cool things. One, inside the cookbook, there was a penny postcard that was dated June 11th, 1940, and it actually has a one-cent stamp on it. <laughs> That's a penny postcard that cool. used to be a penny. And this woman was bragging about how she loved this this um, this restaurant she had eaten there. And the, the other cool thing is that the book is apparently autographed by Ruth Graves Wakefield. And the thing I really wanted to bring up, and this is for a dollar, by the way. I was just about to say, uh, how would it cost? One buck, huh? One buck, yeah. And so, he, but the thing that's weird about it is that there's a picture early in the book, even though I can't find a recipe for it, of grapefruit stuffed with crab. Oh my now, goodness, that's your favorite. <laughs> so, so I, my, like, I had, I was gobsmacked. <laughs> When I read this, and, and I looked at it, and I went, oh, my God, this isn't even a new idea. Because as anyone who listens to the show consistently knows, a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, Adam and I went to La Folie, and the, one of the dishes was this crab uh, dish, and it was and on the plate was a, was a bunch of grapefruit, grapefruit. Uh, ground up. It was like a grapefruit sauce, and I thought the combination of crab and grapefruit was horrible. Well, and, and I just want to say that uh, my wife eats that quite regularly. She'll make that for herself as a little snack. I believe the difference is in the grapefruit. I think she sugars the grapefruit a little bit, and that was probably what threw you off. Well, the grapefruit was a little bitter. Yeah, but uh, but I'm still trying to imagine because I'm pretty good at kind of you know imagine the, the taste of crab and grapefruit, and I'm not getting it. I'm not getting that this is a good combination. When you come and over here, that, I'll, I'll have Patricia make hers for you. Maybe you will uh, get it. Maybe. Uh, oh. I'm, I'm already prejudiced now, though. I mean, it's going to be hard for anyone to turn me around, even though I saw this old recipe from the uh, 1940s, which makes me think it's an old-style thing that's never really caught on. It's maybe only spotty. With the Dutch. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it could the, be Dutch. The Rotterdam faction. <laughs> so so but anyway. why, do, uh, why does the library... And I've always supported libraries. I've famously done a big hair poster for uh, the ALA, the American Library Association, which is still laughed about. Um, why Ooh, does... I get a copy of that? Yeah, I, I still have a couple of the full posters. 
<laughs> Why does a library sell books to make space? Well, sometimes just to, uh, they, you know, there is only so much space and they get a lot of books in and I think they move some of the older ones out. And a lot of these, they have a sale at the Albany Library uh, twice a year. And I think a lot of the books are donated or they come from someplace else or from closed libraries because there's, there's more books for sale than the library ever had. Right. And I, I have like boxes and boxes of books that I've bought, usually huge sets of, you know, reference books that you can get for yeah. you know, next to nothing that are sitting in the basement because uh, I can't resist buying, you know, the 45 volumes of, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of how to prune a tree. Of course, you know, as for, one does for six dollars. <laughs> just like, I, you know, it's just how can you not buy this thing? It's, you know, so um, yeah, that's a little yeah. known fact about. About me, people people all say, you know, for my birthday, what do you, what do you want for your birthday? What does a guy like you want? And I always, it's always the same. Just buy me a book. Any book will do. I'm, I'm prefer I'm preferential to uh, coffee table books, actually, but I am really. I, I love big picture books, and that's my favorite. But what I like about someone giving you a book as a gift is it says just as much about what that person thinks of you. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, gee, thanks, you know, and, and, it, and like, you really think I would read this? It's a perfect, it's, I love it. It's, uh, it's my, that's a funny, my yeah, private little, uh, well, now everyone knows. But anyway, one of the things my wife and I both do is when we see these book sales of any sort, or we go to a used book place, we're always looking for antique, really, really old, especially if we can find public domain yeah. cookbooks that go back into the turn of the century, especially, or even before. And we have a, a pretty large collection of interesting cookbooks. Huh. Um, and it's in, in it, this book is this particular one, which is, I think is the 11th printing. I guess it was very famous in its heyday. Uh, it, it follows a certain weird style that these old cookbooks used to have, which is the beginning of the cookbooks. And I don't know when this ended, but I suspect in the late fifties, the beginning of the cookbooks had nothing to do with cooking at all. It was just a bunch of household tips, like tons of them. Huh. You know, how here's like this, right to page 37. Cuts and scratches. Remember that all cuts and scratches are dangerous if neglected. It goes on. Epileptic fits. You know, it talks about how to <laughs> what deal do you do with against them. that? Place the patient in such a position. What, what does this have to do with the cookbook? Cooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I just pulled out one of my favorite books because it, it just, and by the way, it's hardly even cracked. I, I used to go to the bookstore and we lived in New Jersey and every week it seemed one of these books would come out and I'd buy it because I knew that I was in it. Um, and, and, and I was, <laughs> seriously, well, I'm not kidding. You know, like one day I'll, I'll really enjoy this. And this is, this, this is actually the first moment. When I, I was a kid. When I was a kid. I can prove I was in this that's book. That's right. Come sit on my knees, sonny boy. I'll tell you. Now I'm looking for the published date on this 1994 New Writers Publishing. It is the oh, New Writers official internet yellow pages. Yeah, these guys were a, a publishing company on the West Coast out here during the heyday of oh. uh, computer book, the computer book business before right. they were all bought up by Pearson. Yep, and so and, um, and it looks like the yellow pages. It's as thick as the yellow pages. Even if you look at the at the side of the page, it has all those little black marks for the letters. You know, so it's yeah. it, it's crazy. If I showed this to my daughter, which I should do. As she'll laugh because it even says here, as easy to use as the phone book with over 10,000 entries. Your Internet yeah, Yellow actually, Pages is a fantastic service. Nothing like it exists anywhere, says Bill Arms, <laughs> Vice President of Computing you know, I wish Services. I had a copy. That's, that's a collector's item. There was two of them actually that came out during that year. The, I, I have the, the other one too. I have and, the other one. Really, the other one I think was from Osborne McGraw-Hill. 
and they had the same title. And the thing is, people don't realize is that book titles are not copyrightable. So, you know, you can go write War and Peace if you want to. So let me and, just let me go look up my entry for a second. And so I remember the editor of uh, one of the editors at um, uh, McGraw-Hill moaning just horribly, wanting me to write in PC Magazine how what a ripoff this other one was. Really? I'm going to answer the phone. I'll be right back. Oh, yeah, you go ahead. You answer that phone, John. I mean, it's not like we're doing a show or anything. Oh, uh, Let me yeah. see. So I'm looking in my... Uh, that's interesting. I wonder, maybe I should look under the M for MTV.com. That's usually where I'm listed in these things. I'm back. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to find my entry. I think it might be under MTV. Let me see. I thought you were going to pull out when you said it was in this book, one of those crappy, um, what was that one? Uh, uh, the, the Who's Who books. Oh, I have that one too. I'm in that as well. The Who's, who's Who of who Rock and Roll. <laughs> the who's who? I mean, the way it would always come. You know, I actually was invited to be in the real who's who once. Oh, the one, no. the English one, the, ah. the, the the who's who book. But I never followed up. I was too lazy to fill out the form. But the other ones, the ones that you see in the United States, are all these who's who in in business, who's who, and the who's 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 who in the West, who's who in California, and the whole idea, the business model for those books is to. Try to get you know thought you know five thousand yeah, yeah, people. You're to, gonna you're gonna order uh, fifty copies for yourself, right? Yeah, because nobody else is gonna buy these damn things, and so you know that you 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 put somebody's name. It's just like your name here, and then you sell. Then you buy the book for like some ridiculous price, and then you're in the who's who. So when I go to somebody's house every so often, I do see one of these books. Mm. You know, if I ever see a who's who in the West yeah. on somebody's bookshelf, <laughs> like you I bought know it. that person's in there and they're an <laughs> idiot. That's two things I can conclude. One, they're in the book, and the people that have the book are complete idiots, and I should not want to be their friend. So I have an even older book, for, uh, a McGraw-Hill publication. That's uh, I'm the sure, one. I'm sure you have this one. The, the, complete, the Internet, Complete Reference, the most comprehensive oh, guide okay. available, includes extensive catalog with more than 750 Internet resources. <laughs> 750 <laughs> wow and it's all like command line stuff right it's all news groups and uh, unix and then there's the whole earth online almanac by a brady publication written by don rittner a topical a to z resource guide a guide to the internet libraries cool hey man we've come a long way haven't we well, now that you're bringing out books... <laughs> I knew it. Here comes John C. Dvorak's collection. This is not a collection. This is one book that I'm going to sell someday. And I want to make it clear that people know I have a copy. Now, let's see here. What's inside? Oh. Oh, I found a... Uh, huh. A dollar! Interesting. A, a publication contract for Cybex which is in this book for some reason. Uh, one of the dummy contracts. Anyway... Uh, it's got a, the cover's got a couple bins on it now, which really annoys me to no end. It's not, but except for that, this is the Macintosh Basic handbook that came out before Macintosh Basic was ever released, and this is the Basic that was never released. Wow, that's nerdy. It's totally nerdy, and this is the big scandal that took place because apparently Bill Gates puts the screws to John Scully, and they pulled this version, this this programming language, off the market, and uh, it never was released. Cool. And it's got a lot of cool things in it. I mean, and this is a very this book. 
But now, the Mac never had BASIC. You could never program in BASIC on it, right? No, this was, was going to be it. Cool. And I don't even see there's just this book is so big, they don't even have page numbers. <laughs> I swear to God, it's unbelievable. I'm looking at it now. There's no page numbers in this thing. It must be 2,500 pages. Huh. Anyway, so. Uh, is it, so, is it, is it, I mean, is it a, what kind, is it, how it's unique is it? I mean, do you think that, how many do you think were printed of the manual? Well, the, the manual was, I don't believe this manual was ever released. I just happened to get a pre, a preview copy of it before it went out, before cool. it went to the printer. What killed I mean, that? This is a, I mean, this is a finished copy, but it was never sent into, into distribution. So the number of copies out there has to be probably less than a hundred. But what killed the basic on the Mac? Steve, uh, uh, Bill Gates, this is documented in uh, John Scully's biography. Uh, Bill Gates went to Scully, I believe, and said, look, we don't want anything create, uh, competing with Microsoft Basic. We're going to pull Microsoft Office off the Mac if you release this thing. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so uh, they did. They, they pulled it off. They, 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 they were, the uh, Apple pulled off basic. They never released it. And Thomas Blackadar and Jonathan, I guess it's Kamen, K-A-M-I-N, the two guys who wrote this book, had to be the most disappointed guys in the world because this <laughs> book is huge. And these guys had to do a lot of work. Oh, cool. By the way, just to, just to tell you, I have it. I have here the Osborne McGraw-Hill, the Internet Yellow Pages Second Edition. That's the one that they were complaining to me about. Yeah, a must-have book for anyone who wants to explore the vast reaches of the Internet. Don't venture into the ether without it. The Wall Street Journal. <laughs> they said that they did theirs before New Writers, but New Writers became a big hit for some reason. Hmm. And so they were moaning to me, John, you know, you because I was writing books from, I actually had an imprint at the time. Can you say something in PC Magazine about how they ripped off our title? And blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the fact is your titles are not copyrightable. Wow. Were they on Helium when they talked to you like that? Yeah, they all they were all on helium. So where would I? Would, you'd be in this, wouldn't you? I know I'd be in this somewhere. I Ooh. don't think I'm in anything. Yes, you are. You're you're cool, John. Oh, it has all of the uh, the Usenet groups listed. Yeah, huh. a, a I think half of those groups are still still there. Yeah, like <laughs> alt dot religion dot monica. Yeah, nice. Oh yeah, <laughs> monica. <laughs> oh, them were the days, huh? Them were the days. Anyway, so this book. Is is available for anybody who wants to buy it. Take it off my hands. Are you kidding? <laughs> anyway, uh, where'd you fall? Where'd you go into the kitchen? Uh, I'm sorry. No, I went into the library. Uh, here at the manor. Well, that was fun. What's your um, What's your most prized book? Which is Which is the one you're most proud of? <sighs> Well, I don't have any books I'm proud of. No, I mean, what what do you, what book do you look in often? Uh, you know, it depends on what books lying around. It's it's not as though I'm like I, I don't really have anything that that you're trying to describe. I have lots of books. I have like a, you know, I have like so many Civil War books. It's ridiculous. I have a lot for, of for uh, me. For me, the book financial is... books. I have a lot of books on economic cycles because I'm working on that myself, and. Uh, there's a book called the the language of pattern or pattern language a pattern language something like that I've been I, I pick that up and breeze through it every so often it's about architecture uh, but it's really radically weird mm -hmm. and um, 
you know, I've got some Toynbee laying around once in a while. That'll put me to sleep. But but this is the thing, okay. though, about, about books. I don't know if, if you care or not, but I, I like the, a book not just for content, but to me, a book can be, really look pretty. You know, it's the cover. I like hardbound books. I like like them in my bookshelf. You know, they. I don't know. I, I'm, I like the physical object of them. Yeah, no, but books are objects, and many, many are designed to be pretty. Or useful, or, you know, a lot of reference books actually are put together in a useful way, They physically in a useful way. Um, that's why I like coffee table books, you know, lots of big different shapes. I like it. I got a coffee table book lying around here that I'm going to, I was going to sell off. I'm giving it to you. Oh, thank you. I have a lot of cookbooks and I'll thumb through those yeah. constantly. But have you ever seen the book Century? It's a coffee table book? No. It's a it's a humongously big book. It's really and it's what's funny about it is you'll see this book on television shows all the time because it was um, at the turn of the century for some reason it became the gift to give to your business uh, relations and mm-hmm. so so company were companies were I guess these guys did some great marketing and it's a century worth of uh, history in pictures so you can imagine how how big this book is and the. On the uh, the back of the book, so when you see it in a bookshelf, you see with big white letters, Century. And from time to time, I'll be watching a show. Like the last time I saw it was on uh, Studio 60 on Sunset. That show, unfortunately, got canceled. Uh, but it was in the producer's office. It was in uh, in his bookshelf there. And you see it all the time. And it's, it's, I and see it's a great this book. book. It's the Bruce Bernard Century. It's hardcover. It's 1,236 pages. And, and it is available used for nine bucks. You're shitting me. Nine no, bucks? Looking, Can you find out I'm what the original one, price two, was? Three, one, two, three copies. Nine sixty six at tower.com, nine twenty four at the Golden Gate Bookstore, and nine forty two at Word Lover Books. And then it goes up from there to nineteen and on. Huh. Forty, fourteen, twenty nine. It's a great book. It's a fantastic book to look at. It really I'll is. Get a cool. copy for nine bucks. Yeah, I'm you in, should. For that. Yeah. I mean what is it? Gonna be twelve for shipping and handling? I don't know. Thing well, it's, weighs a ton. It's that big, it's probably going to cost you twenty to ship the damn thing. It's very heavy. It weighs a freaking ton. It's one of those things you use, you know, when you're gluing shit, and you're like, ah, uh, what can I put on this? Ah, uh, get the Century <laughs> Book. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's a great object. You know, it has. It's multifunctional. Yeah, one hundred years of human progress, regression, suffering, and hope. I love that. It's like a reality TV show. Huh. Okay. Of course, I'd better order it now before the our listeners all buy them up. <laughs> yeah, we got to have the that list book, price on this thing is only fourteen ninety five. I'm telling you, it was it was a huge hit as a as a as a giveaway. I, in fact, I received two copies myself. I gave I gave another copy away. But um, one thousand photographs. It was a comparison. I've never. Yeah, it's funny. I missed this one. Yeah, it was it was a big hit in the turn of the century. Good marketing. Turn of this century. Yeah, turn of this century. Yes. Yeah, it came out in June uh, 2002. Uh, well, that does... No, that's not correct because I well, received no, this, it in 1999. This version, this published, oh, okay. this is obviously a reprint. Okay, yeah, in 1999. Well, let me just see. Mine should, mine should say 1999, right? Hold on. It oh. weighs two, two and a half pounds. Yeah, this has got to be a smaller version. This is a different one because oh. this is only five inches by five inches. Oh, uh, no way. Okay, here it is. Oh. So you got the big giant one. Yeah, check it out. I'll just drop it on the table. <laughs> yeah, it's the big giant one. It's uh, And this was given to me by 
So the one I kept, apparently, by uh, RTL Veronica and the Holland Media Group. Uh, and they put some little, they you know, they had a little inscription there. Oh, actually, it's an inlaid page with the Holland Media Group. So, th so it's even a special print. It's a special run. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it has their logo in it. It's uh, conceived and edited by Bruce Bernard. Right. Got let me, that. Let me just see. I think this came up obviously as a package thing. It was a package job. If you're in the publishing business, you can, you know, you put the book together for the publisher. You don't, the, the publisher doesn't do anything but really distri distribute, print it and distri distribute it. Yeah. It's called a packaging. And so they, so this guy obviously packaged this thing and sold it to a number of different publishers around the world. But there's no, um, formats. there's no date. That's crazy. Oh, is, okay. So there's a foreword, a preface. I'm sorry. Uh, which is by Bruce Bernard, 1999. But there's no other. Um, there's no other date. There's no copyright date in there. No. Huh. That's crazy. You know, on that page where where the inscription is basically saying, "Hey, have a great, have a great new century." Hmm. <laughs> have a great new century. Let me just see what they actually say. I'll translate it on the fly. The end of a new year, the start of a new century, and a new millennium. Looking back. We'd like to stop and think with you and reflect on what was. And as far as we're concerned, what will be again? More than just uh, a, good, uh, a good relationship. We're looking out to lots more. And fuck you very much. Okay. So uh, one of these guys that's selling this book, the small version, even though it says hardcover, is Tower Books, and they have this big website. So Tower Records became like music video books. I didn't know that. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know if that's universal across all stores that closed. Well, I think this is for the online. Mm. Oh, yeah, okay. Looking, it, looks like, it looks like a clone of Amazon. You know, there's a big you problem know? with Amazon. I'm sure you followed this, and it didn't really register with me until I found out. You know, we have this Podshow Press thing that Mark Nemkoff runs. Right. So the deal is, you know, we we do the audio book, and uh, and we get the advertising from that if we if we're fortunate enough to sell it, and then we will pay for the cost of printing, you know, proofreading, uh, type some typesetting things or whatever it is, you know, layout, right, whatever, right, and uh, cover art even, and then the printing. Um, but now Amazon has decided that they'll. I guess that did they buy a, an on an uh, on demand printing company, John? You know, I have not followed that. I, I've only heard about it. I haven't gotten, I've been too busy to check out what the hell they're doing with this. I know they've done stuff like this before. Uh, they may have bought, bought an on-demand printing company, but I know they can do short runs. Right. Well, I know the, the, the thing I know is that they will only now carry on-demand on uh, printed books from this one supplier, which is, I, I know it's not the one we were using. Um, and the reason why is because the one they use exclusively or purchased uh, is apparently really shitty, and like the pages fall out. The ones that they're the Amazon ones are crappy. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It's a. It's quite a. You know, I don't think it's a story that's been covered well enough. Well, I'm going to look into it because I'm kind of. I, it's one of the few little subsections of the business that I actually do follow. I've been to the on-demand show in New York a couple of times, and I've keep up with some of the technologies out there and what these companies do. It's actually somewhat amazing. You can actually. <clears throat> 
That's a good job. They don't know this. There's, these books are referred to in the business as, uh, um, oh, what's the uh, uh, toner-based printing. So instead of having a printing press print the book, it's printed on a what essentially is a high-speed copying machine. Yeah, but it's not a copying machine. And so what you can do with toner-based printing, and I can spend you if you ever get one of these books, you've probably seen them. But I, as soon as I get one in my hands, I I, I can immediately tell that it's a toner-based book. It you know it's an on-demand book. They have a certain feeling. And look, and the paper, and the the, the way the, the the fonts look on the page, and everything about these books just reeks, <laughs> and it, it kind of bothers me because I think it. I, maybe most people don't notice it, but I find them to have a slightly cheap quality that is indefinable. Anyway, the the people should understand that the mechanism out there. There's actually a mecha, uh, There's a end-to-end mechanism now that you can you can literally do the following thing. You give the um, the printing company a PDF file and an Illustrator file, which consists of the entire innards of the book and the cover. Theoretically, they don't very rarely do this, by the way, but theoretically, theoretically, you can the printer can do the following: they can take your PDF file and your Illustrator file. They can take somebody else's PDF file and somebody else's Illustrator file, and it goes into the computer and out comes. It goes right through this machine and makes all the pages and binds it and puts a cover on it. It comes out one copy of your book followed by one copy of the other guy's book. Bang, bang, just like that. Amazing, isn't it? That's what print-on-demand can do. Now, they generally don't like doing it because there, there may be – it's just a data entry. I'm not sure exactly why they just don't do it. I think it's also – you know, you got a bunch of books that are all mixed up. But, you know, they'd rather print like 500 to 1,000 copies so they can put them in a box and get them – you know, they don't have to deal with here's one copy of your book and another copy of this guy's book and another copy of the other guy's book and what do we do with all these books kind of thing. They don't like that. They, they're, it's not that organized. It would be really cool that what's missing from the pictures that – the one book comes out bound, chopped, falls off the edge into an envelope uh, that is a shipping envelope and a label slapped on it and it's automatically sealed and goes right into the UPS truck. Wow, that would that be, would that be would cool. cool. They don't have that end part yet as far as I know. Let me, um, let me just read from uh, an email from Mark Nemkoff to me. I'm sure he'll be okay with it. Uh, so there's a slight problem with the book publishing thing I didn't want to bother you with yet. Of course, good little soldier. Long story short, Amazon has said it will no longer carry print-on-demand books done by companies other than their own, which is called Book Surge. Problem is that Book Surge has a terrible reputation for bad quality, pages falling out, etc., very high costs, and lack of availability. This just came up about a month ago, and I've been waiting to see how it gets sorted out before proceeding with putting out books. There has, of course, been a loud outcry from the indie publishing community that I've read the Washington State Attorney General is looking into possible RICO implications evol- uh, involving Amazon Book Surge's attempts to strong-arm publishers into taking their less-than-adequate deal. Oh, interesting. Sounds like we need to look into it. Yeah, sounds like you need to make sure you're really following these things. Well, it sounds like, yeah, no, I haven't gotten that far, but I think it's a good, this sounds like a market watch column for me, since Amazon's a publicly traded company. Well, I'm happy to uh, have been able to source some of that for you, John. <laughs> no, I mean it. I like that. I, I love it. It's, uh, you know, I, market watch to me is a pretty mainstream brand. You know, stuff gets out to the front that way. I like that. 
Well, you know, Market Watch is an interesting uh, operation to write for because you got once you realize what you're doing in terms of what what the audience wants, as opposed to like PC Magazine or some of these other things, and and you, once you realize that essentially. A brand like Market Watch is good for one thing and one thing only. It's very much like CNBC. You're there for stock tips. <laughs> That's it. So That's you can it. Learn about you know how to paddle a boat, or you can learn about how to buy <laughs> stocks or how options work. You're there for tips and lots of them. Yo. And that's the difference between CNBC and Fox Business. Fox Business is not caught on yet because they don't get that. They have, you know, shows, they got talk shows and they got little dingy girls. That yeah, people just want to know how to get rich. That's all. They just want, you know, what's the stock doing? Is it a good stock? Should I buy it? Some, one guy says yes, one guy says no. There's actually a show I listened to on, uh, one day I was driving around Massachusetts in a car that had a Sirius, I think it was Sirius. It was either Sirius or XM, one of the two, whatever. And I was tuning around, and there was a section of these radio talk shows that don't get a lot of distribution. I think this was only on the satellite. And it was a, it was a stock tip show that had a unique form, format that I really liked. And I wish if somebody out there listens to the show, they can send me an email so I know who, who these people are. But it consists of like like four experts of you know from different companies and they would say what do you think of such and such you know this this and they'd name a company and the one guy would say why he was recommending it another guy would say why he doesn't recommend it and then they another guy would say you know it thinks the company stinks the other guy thinks this company's great it was actually kind of interesting because then they'd argue about it and you'd get some sort of a consensus out of it as to whether this was a good stock tip or not well one thing i think would be very interesting john um i think that that holds true for our audience here i I think you should uh, do a stock tip every show yeah i should or just tell us what you're buying i mean you you disclose it obviously you know i don't buy anything in tech though because i write about it in so many who gives a shit whether it's tech or not Oh, well, I would do stuff out of tech. Oh, excuse me. This is not Twit. I know you're confused because it's the weekend. You don't know if it's Saturday or Sunday. And oh, if here you got we go again. Your buddy Lee. You know, I heard you last week, man. You guys had like a two-hour show. All of a sudden now it's okay for Twit to be long. You're talking about... You, it was hey, right I after, right was after not... you did this show, and you're talking about the same topics, and it's pissing me <laughs> off. Oh, brother. So the... <laughs> Don't do right, that, let, man. You know, let I'm going to have give to you ban this. you from Twit. This, is, this has got to stop. You this, let me give you this, <laughs> the stock tip that, that I'm thinking. I am not into this, but I, I should. If I hear you talk about this with Leo, I'm going to be so upset. I don't think Leo likes stocks. But you guys but aren't anyway. even talking about tech anymore on Twit. Well, I, that's not my idea. I'm the one who keeps bringing up the news items. But we're not talking about Twit. It, we might as well talk about Twitter. By the way, if you have a Twitter account out there, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, real yeah. Dvorak is my name. Um, <laughs> I need to get a couple hundred more, and I'm, I'll be in the top ten. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Anyway, uh, a lot of people are looking at uh, Capital One as a short. Hmm, Interesting. Now they're the uh, credit card company, or is that are they yeah. just playing just credit cards? Yeah, it's mostly credit. Because COF is the symbol. It's uh, Capital One Finance, I think, financial. Yeah, you think uh, something's got to happen with the credit card companies? There's got to be some shit going on there too. 
There's got to be tons yeah, of defaults. Yeah, no, the whole thing. I mean, ever since the uh, Bear Stearns collapse, everybody's really skeptical about all these finance companies because they all made these, the same mistake. A lot of it had to do with the fact that they were, you know, the, these fake uh, AAA ratings that were just bogus. And and I was had a lunch with somebody the other day who was in finance, and they were talking about how the whole lending system has changed so drastically because it used to always be you'd set across from the person that was borrowing the money, and now it's all done on computer. Computers, and it's yeah. done out of India, and it's all th- offshore, and you know who knows. You, so the people were obviously the scammers just came in. It, well, and, and the know. rating agencies, I think, are the, the the largest to blame because they're the ones that put AAA status on all this crap. Yeah, no, the rating agencies are to blame. They should all be taken out and hung. And you know, sued. and this, and, and I, I think, I think we're still not even halfway through this game, man. Because I, you know, I, you know, I'm really into this, and I'm I'm just reading all these. Horror stories and you know, bank. There's no money flowing. It's just not flowing. It really is not. It's it's not uh, not a pretty situation to find this. Everyone was fucking everyone else for, in some minute, small way, and it was all you know. It's just all come crashing down. It wasn't just these you know mortgage uh, securities. All kinds of shenanigans has been going on. Yeah, this has been the shenanigan era. Damn. But this took place in the 20s, too, and it's very similar. Yeah, we'll get over it. It's just how long will it take, you know, because you keep talking well, we'll about it. we'll get over it when the economy collapses, you know, in about a year and a half. What happens when the economy collapses? I mean, what actually takes place? Well, it it, it upsets a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's great fodder for news. Lots of, it's great for, for news you're like stations. The, you're like a pundit, you know. Like, it upsets like, a lot of people. I'm really pissed off now. This economy has collapsed. It is. <laughs> What happened? No, do we, to, it, I'm what happens? To work we get my British understate. You know, understatement. <laughs> yeah, that was, was a good one. It was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, what happens? Hyperinflation. What takes well, place? Well, that's the question. So, here's the question: What happens is now, I believe hyperinflation is what's going to happen, and the reason why is because we're so deeply in debt worldwide that the fastest way to. Even my dad told me this when I was a little kid. Exactly why he's telling a little kid this, I'm not sure, but he says. <laughs> These guys like inflation because that way you can pay off your debts with cheaper money. And uh, okay, Dad. Wait a minute. Let me just stick with that for a second. And clearly you were scarred for life by this. Um, so hyperinflation, they can pay off their debts with cheaper money? If you have a, a th- if you're a thousand dollar or ten, I'd say a hundred thousand dollars in debt, yeah, and all of a sudden we go into a hyperinflation mode where everything goes up in value like drastically, and it costs more to do everything, and you have to obviously get raises and pay, get more pay. Right, 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 the, right. The relative value of the dollar stays the same, but you have like now you have a hundred times more of it because you have to to keep up with hyperinflation. And by the way, the Brazilians are the best at dealing with this. They used to have a it has a common problem in the country for a decade or more, and the Brazilian banks are known to. Be be the most advanced in the world because of their ability to deal with hyperinflation. Anyway, huh. uh, so now you have, so now there's like everything is, is, just costs a lot more, and so you still have the hundred thousand dollars. That that doesn't the, the, change. Yeah, that and so that's basically like worth a thousand now. That debt, so I can yeah, pay so it off, and I'm done with it. You give them the oh. equivalent of a thousand bucks, you're out of debt. 
I mean, what could be better than that? So if you're heavily in debt and all screwed up, uh, you know, Perfect. hyperinflation is the way to go. And we're Perfect. internationally heavily in debt, and it's possible that hyperinflation would fix it. But, you know, hyperinflation's also got all kinds of so, well, yeah, well, yeah, So run me through the scenario for a second. So let's say we have hyperinflation, so the dollar uh, devalue—no, uh, wait a minute. The prices go up tenfold. Does the dollar then go down tenfold? Is that what happens? The value, value versus, the value, versus the, the euro? value does. Yeah, it's a re- relative value does, but the, the, and only if, of course, you demand you get paid more because you know. You yeah, can, otherwise you starve to death. Right, right, right. right you, otherwise right. you starve to death because you got nothing. Right. Uh, now the the thing is, what what happens to real estate? Real estate obviously goes up in value because it's real. State, you know, so you, by the way, you don't actually own the land. I just want to point that out. You, you only you only own the real estate shit on top. Actually, you do own the land. Oh, I beg to differ. But anyway, once you don't own the mineral rights generally, but you generally own the land because um, you can buy lots. So how does that work? So anyway, um, so the price of all that well, stuff. D- goes d- I just want to say, John, you just asked me a question and waltz over it. Okay, we'll get into that another time, but. Don't think you can just blow past me because you don't own your land. Well, okay, we'll I, stop I, I, right I, here. No, Let's explain I, it to us. No, explain I don't. I've, I've been lectured on this, and I, I'll, I'll have to get by a, a constitutionalist. <laughs> oh, it's a Ron Paul it. thing. It's a total Ron no. Paul thing. So okay. I, I got to look into it. All anyway. right. So then we know it's a little nutty. All right. <laughs> besides the point, one way or the other, the, for all practical purposes, you do, even if you don't, based on some crackpot theory. Now, <laughs> oh, oh, man. Anyway, the point is. You is don't talk to Leo thing. like that ever. He never comes up with crackpot theories. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. If he I'm did, sorry. I would. So. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, the point is, is that hyperinflation creates one form of a weird economy. And the other one, of course, is the one that they hate the most, which is deflation, which is the one where real estate becomes worth less and, you know, the dollar becomes worth more. And so you want to be in cash and not in in property and or debt for sure. And deflation is the one that scares them the most. And uh the last time we went through an a, a economic situation, we had this thing called stagflation, which was something totally different than anything anyone's ever witnessed before. Uh, you had a lot of hyperinflation in the cycle before that. And there's it, it always takes on some sort of different form. That's the problem with, yeah, even if you could accurately, and I think you can, accurate, accurately predict a, an economic downturn, uh, you, know, you, get, you run into a bunch of issues. One, everyone wants to know why. I don't think there's a why. I think it's a cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, everybody wants to know what, in terms of what is it going to be like? Is it going to be hyperinflation? Is it going to be stagflation? Is it going to be something new? Which would, And what would that be? That's the question you really can't answer. It's just like you don't know because every one of these things is so different. So we, so, so but let's just I look. don't know what to recommend. I tell you, know, the only thing that's been consistent over every economic downturn has been farmland. If you can buy farmland at the bottom of, a, of an economic collapse, which tends to be in this next one would be 2013, that farmland will increase in value until uh, for about seven years uh, while everything else is going all over the place. So I noticed you've actually moved your target from 2012 to 2013. No, no, the, the target's still the October 2009 for a crash, and then it's, it cycles down to 2013, which would be the bottom. Uh, it would be uh, same as 1933, as, as a matter of fact. Okay, hold on. October 2009, and the bottom is when in 2013? 
I don't know, summer. Summer. Could be any time in 2000. It just bounces around on the bottom in 2013. That's the bottom. And then it starts to pick up. This is the, the way the cycle works, by the way. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this then, since clearly some, some questions can't be answered. Um, ultimately, uh, everyone within the collapsed economy gets hurt. Um, how do you think that's going to look? I mean, you, what is the hurt going to be like? Does that is that totally depend on whether it's a deflation, uh, hyperinflation, or stag stagnation? Stagflation. <laughs> I like stagnation better. <laughs> stagnation. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, like everybody gets hurt in one way, shape, or form, and it's, but you know, some people get through it. They get lucky. I mean, there's well, what's, different kinds of business. Do you have a strategy for well. each for each scenario so that we can get unbelievably wealthy? Well, if you can short. You know, and drive the thing into the ground. You can you can make quite a bit of money if you have the guts to do it. Right. That's drive. That's driving uh, the actual uh, collapse. But once you're yeah. in the collapse, what can you do? Is that is that when you want to just be at the bottom, get your farmland? That's it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Only farmland. I mean, that's huh? a safe bet. That's the only safe bet. Huh. Uh, that's it. Then then you'd, you'd sell the farmland in, tw- in the year 2020, and then right. it goes back to its old price. Because at the end of the day, we need to eat. I think right? the Swedes would came up. I have the documentation for this farmland idea somewhere, but it'll be in this book when I get the damn book done. But the uh, farmland thing, uh, the Swedes, I believe, are the ones who documented this this strange effect, and um, it seems to be valid. And if you think about the logic of it, it makes sense. That's fascinating stuff, man. So, okay, so we got to look out for the shorts on the way in, and that's going to be before, well, October 2009. Do you want to explain? Well, that's October 2. Now, there's, there's three ways that these, these cycles begin. There, there's the one that essentially, uh, sometimes you can carry the thing, the, the, whatever the case is in 2013, that is a bottom of something. It might not begin in 2009. It might not begin in 2010 there the eight the, the cycle that was in 1890 really didn't ha- ha- start with a crash in 1889 it was actually kind of a the the business everything was looking good for a number of years and then it collapsed and they had a depression quote unquote in in 19, 1893 and it was called the great depression of 1893 and then it followed the rest of the cycle so the beginning of the thing has a number of different the entries to the collapse are varied there's could be uh, some of them I think ideally you have a stock market crash after a little mini boom and a lot of people don't see a mini boom coming and you can't have a crash without a boom. Well, uh, would, so would, would you not I say that? Th- I think next year, I think in 2000, I think as soon as John McCain is elected president, which is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone laughs at me. But no, I'm no, no. I, I, listen, dude, I'm all over the world. I'm telling people, oh, John McCain's going to win. Like I fucking made it up, okay? So I'm totally there with you. So when John McCain is elected president, and I think the scenario would be different if the other two got got in. But if John McCain's elected president, I can assure you, because this ha- kind of happened, we've seen it a couple of times, that the stock market is going to take off like a rocket. And uh, and then if he can get us out, you know, if all the guys running, he's the one guy who could just pull us out of Iraq, just out of the blue. Uh, he could just take, you know, say, you know, I looked this over and I guess I was mistaken. These guys are screwed up. I didn't realize how bad it was. We're leaving now. You know, and he would have the chops to do it, and he's the only guy with the credibility to pull that off. You, you know, if it was Obama or somebody, oh, you know, they would think he's just a big weenie or a wimp. But <laughs> McCain could pull that out. He has the, he the charisma. That, yeah, absolutely. If he did that, 
on top of like the fact that he just got elected, yeah, the stock would, market would, would go explode, crazy. Would explode. Absolutely. Now you have to remember. I'm sorry. You have to remember 1929 before the market crashed. Well, some of us can remember that, John. Well, when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, when the stock market crashed in 29, you have to know that it was 1929 where the thing went crazy. It wasn't in 1928 or the equivalent of 2008. It was in 1929. And it, within that one year period, the, the entire Dow Jones tripled, which means that the Dow Jones that it is today would go to over 30,000 yeah, sometime before uh, the crash. So you just uh, basically buy indexes then just to be you know safe. Yeah, yeah, you could. that would be a good bet. And then yeah. short them. And anyway, people always what do you say, mean, well, you know, what, what do you mean short them? Because it's going to first, first it's going to take off and then we short them, right? Yeah. Yeah. You wait for it to take off. Then you short them. Yeah. Uh, when it crashes. Yeah. Actually the, the crash always for, for, usually has a bounce. So you can usually short at the bounce, but be that as it may, the, the I always tell people said, you know, Dvorak, this theory of yours, which you've been talking about for years now is crazy. And I always say to him, look, here's the only thing. Just do me this one favor. If the Dow Jones hits 30,000, consider the theory on Proven. on the money A yeah. and start getting ready to sell everything you own. Well, so let me say this. I'm in. You know why? <laughs> no, seriously, because I don't give a shit. Right now, I have nothing but cash. I have no stocks, no bonds, except what I own in uh, in Mevio. Everything else, I'm, I, I'm, I'm completely out because I just don't want the headache. However, I will go into your strategy full force. I buy it, and because well, you know, because if I lose, I'm like, I don't give a shit anyway. All right. Well, then, this, this, if, if you're heavy on cash, mm -hmm. the thing you have to do, and boy, of course, you could you know put some money in the market when it starts to pick up, and after McCain gets elected, uh, you want to put your money in in Swiss banks, in Swiss francs, because they uh, that'll be indexed Stable. against any sort of up or down. Right. So, but that's the cash that I'm not putting into the market. You mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll do 50-50. Yeah, that'd be fine. You, you got so much money, who cares? 50-50. I'll put 50 into the indexes or indices. Is that what you call them? I don't know. And I'll put yeah. 50 into Swiss francs. But that's cool because then I also get one of those bank account numbers that no one else knows. No, that, that you have to ask for. That's a special. Not every Swiss. That's a rare account. Very few people get those. Those are crazy. That's so. That's the big. That's got to be the biggest suckers game in Switzerland. I, it, I'll tell you. You know what the biggest suckers game is. So the minute you show up at a private bank, right? So you know, th there's banks. People might not know this, so maybe it's interesting to talk about it. Um, but when you have a certain amount of money, uh, you will be uh, aggressively marketed by banks who basically want to, you know, manage your money and use it to, uh, you know do shitty loans and stuff and um what the hell was my point john what the fuck were we just talking about just you were talking it. about the private banks is the biggest scam uh, oh here it is here it is okay right 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 so when you have uh over a certain amount then they always come to you in these in this meeting it's like well and then we have um because you know, they always have all these different programs and vehicles basically it's like charges right there's just stuff to take money away from you just not even using your money just fees that you will fees. pay fees fees exactly and by the way some of them are really good and very personable and i have a good relationship with some bankers but the one that i that really always freaks me out is well we have the kidnap insurance and and, uh, and yeah, oh yeah, it's nuts. And they and said so, and and it's never actually signed in your name, so no one ever knows that you have the insurance. It's you only get a number, and then you get a you know it's like you get a number in a sealed envelope, and then uh, should you. 
you or someone in your family or whatever you who is insured is kidnapped, then you're insured up to whatever amount, but only uh, only by number. You're not known by name because, of course, you know if someone knows you has have this insurance, which of course the guy who was selling it to me knows, no matter what, whatever my number, he knows I have it. It's a freaky thing. <laughs> How much did they charge? I don't know. I, I always said no. I said you can keep her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And she said the same thing. Yeah, so how? Isn't that coincidental? <laughs> it's not worth it. I'd rather, the, I'd rather have the interest. Well, that's, you know, when we had our public company, man, that was, I was like, there were guys, I told you this before, they were waiting outside the door. And, you know, our stock went, you know, from seven to 45, you know, over a couple of months, you know, it bounced around and then we missed a quarter, you know, typical public stump, company stuff, although we actually were pretty much profitable all the time. Um, then you get these shareholder lawsuits and what would happen is they start suing the companies, the publicly listed companies. You have to go through all these procedures. This is before Sarbanes-Oxley and lo and behold, they'd pretty much go for the amount of money that is known as a basic insurance rate for these types of lawsuits. And so at the end of the day, you know, when it got to that point, everyone said, oh, okay, well, here we go. And then they get a check just for being dickheads. Horrible business. They're just sitting there, just waiting to sue you for whatever reason. They can find any kind of cause, and it's always for the exact amount that you're insured for. It's just it's an, it's another sub loop of this big theft that's going on in Wall Street. On Wall yeah, Street, yeah. Well, that's it is a pro- issue. So, um, I bought some raw milk the other day, mm. like straight from the cow raw. I wish. Have you ever had that yeah. straight from the cow, from the udder? Yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. It's good. Yeah. It's kind of warm. It's kind of a weird way of consuming. Well, I've got a photo in one of my one of these crazy old cookbooks that shows that, it, I guess, in these little towns in Italy, some guy would wander into town with a cow with a bell on it, ding, ding, you know, with his wife, and they would sit down, and that would, they'd set up shop. Yeah, and then you they know, just, the, you bring your bucket. The, and, uh, in the farmer's milk. market kind of thing. And you'd, mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring your bucket, and you'd, they'd squirt in a bunch of milk, and you'd walk it home. Ah, the good old days, my friend. I remember them well. Squirting cows. But I'll tell you this: there's no comparison. If you can, if anyone there out there has a raw milk dairy that nearby, they should get uh, get this stuff. And it should be a nearby dairy, and it should be a small one. It should be there's one of these. There's a big conglomerate that makes this stuff, and it's just terrible. It goes bad, and it's just uh, oh no, you don't want that. But the good raw milk uh, that we or go to a farm, this. go to a farm when you're driving by some cows, go to the farm and say, dude, can I please suck your cow? I would like to try some milk. It's not a bad idea. I'm sure they'll sell some milk to you if you come around milking time. Depends. I mean, it depends on how freaky they are about the health department. You know, the, the, oh, there's true. been a thing yeah. that's been you know done in this country to brainwash people that raw milk is bad, <sighs> and uh, so that way you know these big giant dairies can make all the money. But if you're up in Washington, there's the Dungeness Creamery. Which is the first raw milk dairy in the uh, country, which is down near our house up there, and you can actually drive over there. The place is so spotless, this dairy, it's, and the cows look so happy. It's, it's hilarious. Ah, what does a happy cow look like? It's just like there's a contentment you can't describe. Have you have you ever gone cow tipping at night? 
No, I never have. Uh, and, I, never and have I, I really hated it, but it was like because I grew up uh, a certain couple couple of years really in farmlands, and that we do that kind of shit, go out at night and then tip cows over. <laughs> I really felt bad. It's it's really sad. <laughs> it is kind of mean. It is. It's incredibly mean. But you know that's the way they yeah, are. It's not like you killed the cows. No, of course not. No, that was the local butcher. We used to go peek and we'd look through the doors, the crack in the door of the abattoir. And we'd see how he'd slaughter the cows. Ugh. Yeah, it was pretty quick. So we were talking about the um, about the fact that we buy uh, animals off the hoof, and yeah. they and these small farmers have these guys cook, that come around that that sometimes they're in trailers and sometimes they're, but these guys are called offers. I never got to this conversation before. I wanted to bring it up because I was talking to my wife about it. You know, so you get so these offers, these professional guys who kill the animals as as an offing them. Is that why they're called offers? Yeah. And, cool. <laughs> and, and apparently they you like it's your you got your steer that you've been raising. You know, and he's you know nine months old. You decide you're gonna off him and eat him <laughs> and so now by the way this is a good conversation for this particular show because this gets rid of any of the vegans that might be listening I yeah, hope. Th- those of you still left yeah get it you know go someplace else so anyway um so they but they the way it's done apparently is they come up and they you know pet the uh, animal and then they you know do all this <laughs> talk nice to him yeah, whisper sweet nothings in its ear blow their brains out or hit him with a something shock electric out. shock right and, and that changes the nature of the meat because these these slaughterhouses are all the animals are freaky you know they're going in the up the steps and yeah they know what's going on they know what's happening they know what's going on and they're all nervous and all their, their hormones are in their meat and you know you wonder why the public's all screwed up because we eat this crap which has been all you know excited this animals are excited and scared and now you're eating the same hormones and you know this is just not a good thing well anyway the 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 the, the end of the story is there's apparently one guy up in Washington who is so good at this that he's called the zen offer the zen offer and the Zen com. offer apparently can go up to just about any animal and sweet talk them, and the animal just relaxes hell, and it just feels so good about life, and then boom, dead. And so my wife's comment is, I wonder if that guy can even get a date. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold on, Zen offer. Let me see if the dot com is available. Zenoffer.com. Oh, it's already taken. All right. Who has You're it? You're kidding me. <laughs> of course. I told you, man, you can't get a .com domain name anymore. Oh, that's unbelievable. Zenoffer.com. Loading. Hold on. Loading. Uh, Maybe it's, a, it's him. It, no, it's a, it's a parked page. It's a very friendly page. No, it's, it's a, you know, no, it's a parked. You're a good cow. No, no. Airline <laughs> tickets, hotels, car rental, oh, flights. Oh, parking site. Parked, yeah, parked page. I hate that. That means it costs a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's got pop unders. Oh, jeez. I hate that. That's good. That, yeah, but so I need to tell the story about the Zen offer. Yeah, that's cool. You know, the uh, apparently the menus in Holland, although they weren't all that great to start with, as we established earlier, um, there's, they get all their meat now from Argentina. They're not even eating their own meat anymore. Wow. And, and it's become so expensive. 
that they they have had to pare down the menus. You just can't get certain cuts of meat anymore because there would be like fifty bucks if they actually had to you know charge charge fairly for it. So the, some restaurants are not even putting it on the menu anymore. Hmm. It's messed up, man. It's well, a globalization that, thing. Well, it's, yeah. And what what sense does it make to ship a carcass from Venezuela? Yeah. Or wherever, Argentina, I guess, which is where their place is loaded with meat. If you don't go down there, that's all they eat. Yeah. Well, when, uh, well you can. You it's can, actually pretty good, by the way, the meat down there. Plenty of good uh, cows to kill in our own backyard. Well, you could. I mean, there's plenty of grass around. I mean, there, the thing is, there's all this propaganda against meat starting to crop up again. And it all happened during this green week that we had. Yeah, we talked about and, that. And we had guys like Bill Maher. You know, going on about how bad meat is. I'm thinking, what is this guy's problem? Did you read that article in the... You read the International Herald Tribune, don't you? Once in a while. Usually only when I'm traveling. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was yesterday's uh, edition. There was a whole thing about the... Um, about the... Uh, actually, it was something we, we said we might touch on. Um, that uh, Basically, these, the article was, America has no energy policy. And he took the... Uh, Hillary and Obama um, measure, measures, I should say, uh, which they uh, which are now known, which we actually talked about. They said, well, uh, what they would if they became president, uh, both Obama and Hillary Clinton would um, remove the excise, uh, the gasoline tax, essentially. And um, so this whole story went a little bit deeper. How um, this absolutely? No, I think Obama said he Obama said he wasn't going to do that. I'm sorry, McCain. I'm sorry, McCain and, and Clinton. Yeah, Obama said he wouldn't. Um, and then this article went in deeper as to you know how the we have so poorly thought out our energy strategy that you know we're still putting billions of research and subsidies into R and D for you know liquid extraction and all these other petroleum based versions of, uh, of of getting energy out of the earth and no investors want to step up um, you know like a Kleiner Perkins as an example they're they're hesitant to step up because you know there seems like there's no subsidies for any of you know the solar or not I don't even know if that's going to work that well but you know the solar uh, wind energy, and it's like a real conundrum. And, we're, and just looking at this article, I'll see if I can get it online. Uh, it looks like in the U.S. We're, we get, we're pretty boneheaded right now when it comes to just you know setting out a couple strategies for the future, other than invading other countries that have oil. Well, that seems to work. <laughs> reckon, of course, harkens back to uh, Confessions of the Economic Hitman. Yeah, and and let's just wrap it up, John, because we're already pretty long right here. Um, I wanted to ask you, both Obama and Clinton uh, were quite clear that they would uh, bomb Iran. <laughs> and I was just, why did, why did that come up again? I mean, w w can you just explain to me? what I I'm really afraid that that's going to happen. And, and it just seems like it's weird because now we've got all of them talking about it. We know McCain's done a song about it, but now to have all three potential candidates, of course, we know it's going to be McCain. I mean, do you think that could really happen? Could we really bomb Iran? I mean, I would doubt it. I wouldn't think, I think maybe, uh, I just can't see it happening. I mean, the, the, the real threat that according to Hillary, who's the, you know, the get tough candidate all of a sudden, she says that if, if Iran bombs Israel, then right, we bomb true. Iran or obliterate them. And can uh, Israel do that all by themselves? Don't they have nuclear 
capacity. Yeah, they do. That's the point. They could, they, you know, it's not, it'd probably be unlikely. And so I think the whole thing is saber rattling and probably just to get to, I would think maybe well, the see, there's that word that, swing for them. There's that word that's saber rattling. And that's to me, that, that means like there's code of something I should be understanding that I don't know. I mean, what, why are we saber, saber rattling Iran? Why? I don't know. Okay. Probably. Uh, I just want to try and understand. No maybe to, to destabilize. Maybe it's code for some, I don't know, to destabilize the country or to get, I have no idea. And why is it uh, saber rattling? Why isn't it not pistol cocking or some other cool word? Well, saber rattling is the term. Can't we make just, a new one? I know. Can't we make a new one? Pistol cocking? I, pistol cocking? It sounds, it sounds profane. That's why I like I it. I think. Yeah, I think saber rattling is a good one because it it, it's, it's, it harkens back to a historical context, meaning that people have done this for a long time, and it has some, it has you know large scale context. So it, you know, and it's also silly if you think about it. Can you if you can imagine Hillary holding up a saber and rattling it? <laughs> First of all, how does a saber rattle? It's like a piece of crap. I mean, <laughs> It's the shitty-ass saber you got there, Hill. That fucker's <laughs> rattling. You might want to check that out before you go up against a Tehran. Uh, that's funny. Anyway, so no, I don't know. We, it'll, you know I guess they used to rattle the sabers, maybe in their scabbard? <laughs> oh, you mean just put your hand down on a thing and shake it? Yeah, something yeah, like that. It shouldn't be, but this is usually leatherish. So yeah, didn't they, didn't they have used to have jewels? Uh, maybe they had some like you know a couple of rubies and shit in the <laughs> rubies <laughs> on my saber. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hey John, I think uh-huh. uh, I think we've had a pretty good uh, pretty good day. I think this is uh, we should keep it at this. All right, well I'm gonna be in Korea next week, so uh, I should really? be back on Saturday to do the next show. Well, you just give me a jingle whenever you're in. Uh, and you're going to Korea for a conference, I think, isn't that it? Yeah, it's a big summit, and uh, you know, all kinds of hotshots are going to be there. The, uh, it'd be kind of interesting. I haven't been to Korea for a while. I like it. It's a nice country. And I think I'll be sitting on a 30 megabit per second line, so you oh, know, I can make phone calls. Sweet. And what are you going to eat? What are you going to be looking out for? Well, they got some good shirt shops there and a couple tailors that are pretty Yeah, well that might not be so tasty, though. Oh, you mean to eat? Yes. <laughs> uh, kimchi, of course. What? There's a lot of good food. They have a kimchi. It's the pickled cabbage of mm. hot pickled cabbage from uh, Korea. But no, there's a lot of good food in Korea. They they have a. It's a. It's a. Um, it's a nice cuisine. It's it's very tasty. Lots of little dinky things. You have a. You have like your whatever the meat or whatever is you're eating. There's a million little bitty dishes with all kinds of strange pickles. <laughs> Can't wait to hear all about it. But you will. Coming to you from the United Kingdom, where we make up words all the time. I'm Adam Curry. And I'm John C. Dvorak here in Northern California. We'll talk to you again next week right here on No Agenda.